All right. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Paul has um, warned the believer about allowing anyone to deceive them regarding being able to inherit the kingdom of God, living immorally. Um, they were to be godly in the midst of that ungodly generation as well as every other generation. Paul told the Ephesians the walk um, of the walk of the believer is to be uh, marked by unity, purity, love. And now, in light and wisdom, Paul, as we have noted, gives us seven ways or marks of a believer to walk in wisdom in this world from verses 15 to 21. The first three we've stated that uh, they center on being beneficial to the unbeliever. In 18 to 21, the last four center on being beneficial to the believer. Not an absolute strictness, but you can see that division. And so we're in the section that began in chapter 5, verse 1, that runs all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, the, nine, the life of the new man in obedience to the word of God. We have noted verse 1 through 7, the walk of the believer in the love of God in contrast to sinners. In 8 to 14, we saw the walk of the believer in the light. And in 15 to 21, we see the walk of the believer in wisdom. We left off in verse 17. So we'll pick up in 18. Paul exhorted believers to not be under the influence of um, a control of anything but the Holy Spirit as he gets to verse 18. This is a mark of wisdom to abstain from the old life and to be absorbed in the new life. So the key verse to this section is verse 18. It is both the power that gives the new life and the power to maintain the mature new life. It's ongoing. It is the transitional verse from the benefit towards the unbeliever and the benefit for the believer. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the fourth mark that is to characterize a believer's walk in wisdom. Three others will follow here as we look in our study, uh, especially for the family. 19 to 21 is a key transitional place before you get into the family, all right? And the key is verse 18. If you're not being filled with the Spirit of God as a husband and wife, well to your family. It will not happen without it. Very, very important. So let's pick up verse 18. The believer is wise by walking, being filled um, with the Spirit of God. Now, the believer being filled with the Spirit of God is in contrast here again to being drunk with wine. And do not be drunk in wine, in which is dissipation. The negative implies danger by contrast. The contrast has been the lifestyle of the child of darkness and the children of light from verse 1 to 17. The command is not um, to be drunk with wine. Again, is in contrast to what the Gentile world lived under. Paul is talking to the Roman world, what they came out of. Just like you and I came out of that kind of style. This is, it had, nothing has changed in the world regarding this area. All sins that have been mentioned and others are um, taken to a greater extreme under alcohol. Under alcohol, it's a, it's a depressant. It's not a stimulus. It, it does a lot of harm in every way. The instruction is an imperative command, by the way, of prohibition. Drunk means to be intoxicated, simply. 
with um, alcoholic drink. In fact, if you go to some restaurants that we serve spirits here, we're talking about alcohol. <laughs> okay? The word is used in, in Homer for the stretching of a bull's hide, which uh, in order to make it more elastic, they will soak it. And that's the word they use here with fat. A uh, great picture as the one is soaked with alcohol and under the influence and affected by it. I presume um, um, if you came out of the world, you've been drunk uh, one or 1,000 times. Um, you know exactly what we're talking about. And so the imperative command could be uh, translated literally stop being drunk with wine. Remember, he's talking to Christians, all right? So it implies that some were getting drunk with wine. This was going on. The old life of the god Bacchus, party hardy, got a wine. The present tense and middle voice indicates an individual responsibility to stop the continuing impact of the old life. He's writing to Christians, not to the non-believer. You never tell a non-believer, hey, stop drinking. You can't. He's telling the believers. And so the whole scripture gave testimony to the lack of wisdom um, to be drunk with wine. Uh, from Genesis on, you'll find it all over the place. The Old Testament gives man um, tragic incidents uh, uh, like Noah getting off the boat, playing a vineyard, and he gets drunk. His son sees him naked. Lot's daughters get him drunk, and they have incestuous relationship. Moab and, and the others are, come from that. Um, and um, you also have uh, Abihu and um, Nadab, the sons of Aaron, who drank wine before they came before the Lord, and he uh, struck them with fire from the altar. David got Uriah drunk. Um, the, um, hopefully he'd cover his sin, he didn't, so he sends orders to kill him. Absalom um, and Abnon. Absalom kills Abnon for the rape of his sister, Tamar. And on and on. You can just go on and on. And you can add to your life, your family or friends or yourself. Nothing happens good with alcohol. And nothing good happens after midnight. It just doesn't. Uh, the Proverbs uh, warn the prohibition. Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is, is said to be a mocker, a strong drink, a brawler, personified as one ridiculing his actions and the person being under its influence. You also have Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. You just read on there in the prohibition and the um, description of that. Now, the New Testament is no different. It is a characteristic of the old life without Christ Jesus. God struck some dead um, the, for coming and drinking too much wine at the communion table. They were drunk. Um, that's the practice that should not be taking place at all to an overseer, an elder in the church, 1 Corinthians 5.10 and 11.21 and verse 30, 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. Very, very clear. And in spite of that, you have a lot of Christians to feel the liberty to drink. Well, let me see your life after two or three years. See what happens to your wife, your husband, your children, your family, uh, down the road, your relationships. Um, it, it's, it's silly. It's, it's dumb. It, it is one of the works of the flesh that if practiced hinders a person from entering the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21. Mark it well. Mark it well. Don't let people deceive you. Okay? Very important. Uh, the contrast we, we made in our in-depth study, but let me just run it to you so you can see that. It's illuminating. Wine is the depressant, the Holy Spirit stimulate, a stimulant. Um, wine is a false concept of self, 
uh, the Holy Spirit gives you a reality of self. Wine breaks down morals. The Holy Spirit upholds morals. Wine, you lose control. The Holy Spirit, you're under complete control. Wine gives you foggy mind, distorted vision. The Holy Spirit gives you clear mind and proper vision. Wine makes you more sensual. The Spirit makes you more spiritual. Wine, things get worse. The Spirit, things get better. And you can go on and on. Okay? Uh, so it's not being legalistic. It's not being a, a bummer, a downer, you know, being negative. Um, there's evidence behind it. And so the consequences of wine are costly. A person being drunk with wine, uh, notice, is with dissipation. Um, it means it has an A in front of the word. It negates um, uh, what, what follows. The meaning is that it is um, to be drunk with wine has no saving quality, but uncontrollable, wasteful, destructive. It's used often to express the life of, an, of abandonment and debauchery. So again, the words that are being used are used in the context and the, and the definition of that day. Paul is addressing in a very debauched world, okay? So he, he's very, very clear on this. The word is found only uh, two other times in the New Testament, in Titus 1.6 and 1 Peter 4.4. 4. Alcohol attacks the higher senses of the brain, as you know, destroying um, everything it comes in contact with. Each person is born with about... 17 billion brain cells, we are told. And though we don't need all of them, uh, once they're destroyed, they cannot be reproduced. Every time a person drinks, he destroys a few thousand cells. Uh, I, I've destroyed uh, hundreds of thousands of cells. Guaranteed, okay? I was 23 when I came to the Lord. I started drinking at age 15. Um, I used to drink with my dad, all right? Uh, nothing good comes from alcohol. Absolutely nothing. Now, the same word in a different form is used of the prodigal son for riotous living, if you remember Luke 15, 13. Um, once he left the home, he had his money, he started partying, and once the money was gone, he, everything's gone. Friends, people, they're all gone, but they're not really friends. And he ends up uh, fighting with the pigs for, for food. Now, when he left, he was not born again. Many pastors teach that uh, the um, sermons on the prodigal son, that once a, a Christian's born again, the child, you know, he will always come back. But the prodigal was not born again. So their sermon gets an F minus. He was lost. The father told the other son, son, your, your brother was lost, now he's found. He was dead, now alive. And they do that to reinforce and to indoctrinate people with eternal security of Calvinism. Completely out of context. It's dishonest if you look at the text. And so um, it's a lack of wisdom, utter foolishness, destroying people, families, and society. In, um, in 2016, one person is, was injured from Alcohol-related crashes every minute. One in three teen accidents, fatalities, were alcohol-related. The average drunk driver in 2016 has driven under um, the influence of alcohol 80 times before they're stopped. Stop and think about yourself if you used to drink and drive. How many times you, dro you drove under alcohol? And you might have never got caught. So you're 100 for 100. Now, 
Habakkuk 2.15 says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. We all understand the nightlife. There's always a goal. Seduction. It's always the ultimate goal. Alcohol doesn't help. The warning of not inheriting the kingdom of God is, as many other scriptures, very clear. We're not to be deceived or mock God on Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Uh, whatever we sow, we shall reap. And that's why I, I, I shudder when Christians try to rationalize and explain away and justify why it is that they drink or want to drink in the freedom they have. But let's just say you can handle it as an adult and you drink privately in your own home. You say you're Italian, you know, you want your little wine and your spaghetti and whatever. And there you're at home, nobody knows. Your children don't live with you? What are you going to do when they get to be teens? You may survive it, they may not. God will hold you responsible for them. You have to teach them by example and word. Very, very important. And so the believer is not to make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust. Paul says that in Romans 13, 11 through 14. Paul deals with the sexual aspect with um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. And he's talking to Christians. Drinking. Being sexually active. He's, he's warning Christians. Not non-believers. The believer being filled with the Spirit is compared to being affected with wine. Listen. But be filled with the Spirit. And so the positive implies an object lesson by comparison here. The meaning is uh, to be filled has to be interpreted in the context. And the word fill means to be full to the top, abounding, like filling a glass completely overflowing. And so the idea is that of nothing is lacking, complete in every way. That's all I need, being filled with the Spirit of God to be able to live the godly life. The word is used in a non-literal way to fulfill a divine command and or chain of number of martyrs and ministry in Scripture in Romans 13, 8, Galatians 5, 14, Revelation 8, 11, and others. And the word is also used in a literal way where that which fills takes possession or control as in our context here, like sorrow, uh, literally um, being filling the, the, the heart of, of the disciples, joy, comfort in the Scriptures. The believer is to be filled with the Spirit literally by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That's indicated here in 518. The Greek grammar is unique here and doesn't follow the genitive case we are told by the Greek scholars, but the instrumental case. To us, it doesn't mean anything, but to the, in the Greek, it's very, very specific. The Holy Spirit is a divine instrument who exerts this control and could be translated, be controlled by the Spirit. It isn't sourced in us. It isn't our discipline. It isn't our control. It's through the Spirit of God. The divine new nature is being influenced by the Spirit of God, the Word of God. That's the source. The believer is to allow himself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit to be supplied liberally so as to walk in the Spirit even as a drunk is controlled by that alcohol he consumes. Equal peril. Now, the tense is the present middle, the ongoing involvement of the believer. Not a one-time event, it's to be always, continually. 
being filled. And so the comparison notice has no literal meaning when it comes to the losing control, though. That's important. Though we've made a comparison and, and we understand the alcohol and the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean uh, that you will lose control with the Holy Spirit. I say this because uh, many times extreme Pentecostal groups will want to blame everything on the Spirit. They'll get up in the middle of the service and start speaking in tongues or prophesy or surely temple will be dancing in the corner and stuff like that. And, and they blame it on the Spirit or they're rolling around the ground. Listen, don't blame God for your stupidity, your carnality. The, the, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophet, 1 Corinthians 14, 32 says. Now, we are Pentecostal, meaning that we believe in the gifts. In the day of Pentecost, they blame Peter and them that they were drunk with new wine. By the way, how interesting, huh? And he quotes Joel. No, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. He talks about the pouring out of the Spirit, sons and daughters, so on and so forth. And he continues on all the way to the tribulation period and doesn't make a distinction of judgment. Interesting. And so the false doctrine of being drunk in the Spirit, and that comes and goes, and, and, and overwhelming laughter, and you just roll around and dogpiling each other, this happens all the time. I mean, you, you really don't need entertainment uh, from Hollywood, all you have to do is go to YouTube and look up some of the churches. It's a mockery to God. But people love to be entertained. People love to present themselves as being more spiritual than they really are. So they call attention on themselves. We don't want to see you. We want to see Jesus. That's why we study the Word of God. Very, very important. And so the comparison between wine and the Holy Spirit is in view of influence. As a man is under the influence of alcohol, yielding his desires, so the same with the man and the woman being filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, as alcohol can, uh, cannot, the thirst for it cannot be quenched, you continue to drink. When I drank two, three, or four six-packs, it wasn't because I was thirsty. All right? You just drink. You just keep doing it more and more. We should thirst after righteousness and the Spirit the same way. Jesus spoke about that in Matthew 5.16. The Psalm 42.1 speaks about it. Um, as an alcoholic lives from day to day, dependent on alcohol to live, so the believers to live depend on the Holy Spirit. Not by might, not by spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4.6. No different, the old from the new. Same thing. So many today would have us to believe that drinking is a disease. It is not a disease. You can get a disease from drinking, but drinking is not a disease. Everything's labeled a disease today. When I drank, I drank. And if I were to continue to drink and not got saved, I probably would have sores of the liver. I'd probably be dead right now. All right? So it's not a disease, but everything is claimed to be a disease with the political correctness and the entitlement and the socialist, social uh, agendas they have. It's deception. It is not a disease. The filling of the Spirit brings about soundness of mind, health to the body. So we are to develop an unsatisfied craving for the Spirit of God. Um, again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 8, um, Paul says, But you, brethren, do, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of hope of salvation. Very clear contrast. Your life should be night and day, from before you were a Christian to where you are now. You should be moving along your maturity in your life of glorifying the Lord. The believer notices being filled with the Spirit as a command opposed to one, but be filled with the Spirit. The imperative implies um, here the divine standard. The tense is the imperative command again, not an option, not a, um, a, a suggestion. Uh, believers can uh, win in spiritual warfare only by walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So if you want to win spiritual warfare, you must walk in the Spirit. The believer is born into spiritual warfare the minute you're born again. Galatians 5.17, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. You, you, you didn't have, Satan was not your enemy or mine when we were in the world. He became my enemy when I became a child of God. I entered warfare the minute I was born again. Now he attacks you. Now he goes after you. Very important. The believer is guided, taught, and overpowered by the Spirit for um, we're children of God. Our body is the temple of God. He empowers us to live that life. James 4, 5 says, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? In other words, his jealousy is for your holiness and mine. Our jealousy is usually because we can't have something we want. Somebody else has it. Our jealousy is selfishness. God's selfishness is sanctification, his love for you and for me. The present tense is indicated here. This is to be going on continuously, not just when we're serving, teaching, or preaching, but all the time in our lives. It could be translated, keep on being filled, empowered to live, and to serve. And Jesus said, he that believes in me, out of the scriptures, has, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water in John 7, 38. John, writing about 90, 95, gives us a commentary. And this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, which was not given as of yet to the church because he was not yet glorified. So he's actually identifying what took place. And so um, this is what will quench our thirst and the void within us that so often is attempted to be filled through pleasure or drinking or drugs or whatever. You fill it in. Academic, a profession. None of the, some, of those, some things are not wrong in themselves. It's just if you make that your goal or that is the thing that you're serving and you're worshiping and you're um, putting all your eggs in one basket, if you will, to obtain. Uh, we're to worship God first. Uh, first seek the kingdom of God and then his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. So our priorities are different. The main thing is our vertical axis, our relationship with Jesus Christ first. Um, Jesus told the woman of Samaria, whoever drinks of this water shall, that I give to them shall never thirst, but the water that, that I give to you will become to him fountains of living water springing forth everlasting life. The woman says, give me this water. It was a well. Jesus was talking about being born again, about living waters completely. And so the command is for every believer. Notice that the verb is in the plural, no exceptions. Everybody, oh, that's only for pastors. No, 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 it's for every Christian, every generation, at every nation, under whatever circumstances. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit 
market ownership engagement, the deposit of the final redemption in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14 has told us. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, bring pain to him, but control and be filled by the Spirit continuously. Ephesians 4.30, Ephesians 5.18. Very, very clear. The command is in the passive voice. This teaches us that the filling is not a work of man, but of God. John the Baptist made this very clear. I indeed baptize with water unto repentance. There's one among you whose shoe I'm not worthy to loosen. He shall baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, Matthew 3.11. Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit. You and I can baptize people in water, but only Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Very, very important. The, the Greek scholar Wies says, a person cannot work himself up to this condition through self-efforts, tearing, praying, or agonizing. God is the one who does it. Mere faith and asking is declared to be the key, Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen. Listen, if you then, being evil, he's talking to his apostles, the, 30, the dirty dozen, if you then, being evil, he says here, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, there's the punchline, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the baptism. We ask the same way we got saved, in faith. And so the doctrine of the person of the Holy Spirit is taught from Genesis to Revelation. It begins in chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the deep. Revelation twenty-two seventeen 17 speaks about the Spirit inviting all to come. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is with man, describing the Holy Spirit present with man before salvation in John 14, 17. Non-believers, the Holy Spirit is there, but they don't pay attention. They don't know the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is there. So when the Holy Spirit, when the Word of God is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit illuminates and opens their understanding to realize they need salvation. That's the work of the Spirit of God. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, 16 um, through 8 through 11. Uh, he makes that clear. Sin referring to the missing of the mark, which is perfection. We all miss the mark. Righteousness refers to the bankruptcy of every person to merit salvation. We receive it trusting the justification of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished. And judgment refers to the accountability of each individual's life to God after death. If we don't repent and cast ourselves upon Jesus, then that rock will fall upon us and crush us at judgment day. Very, very clear. So Jesus said the Holy Spirit comes into a man. So he's with us. Then he comes into a man in, in John 14, 17 also. So the Greek word is en. It describes the Holy Spirit. When you accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in you. Your body is the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And the believer's body used to be used in every which way. Now you want to honor God with your body in everything you do. Even in what you, how you speak. Whether you eat or drink, due to the glory of God, Paul says. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come upon us at P. That's the word, the preposition. The believer's empowerment. He uses the word himself, the phrase. Many people object to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.5, I give to you the words of Jesus before he ascended on high. As he was with him for 40 days. You will be baptized not many days from now. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the command here to be constantly filled with the Spirit of God. 
There's many other phrases, the promise of the Father, promise of Anheim, the filling, the P, many is found throughout the book of Acts, Luke 24, 20, uh, 49, Acts 1, 8, 2, 4, and it's not just a one-time experience, but over and over and over again, empowerment for service. John the Baptist, again, distinguishes between the two. Uh, the Spirit came down on the Samaritans, remember, 12 years after the day of Pentecost in Acts 8, 15 through 16. Because many people say, well, that was just for Pentecost. Well, 12 years later, in Samaria, it happened to them, okay? And it happened to everybody else before that, but we have a marker there, okay? The Apostle Paul received the baptism of the Holy Spirit first, then in water in Acts 9, 17 through 18. So a different order. The key is, is you're first born again. Without being born again, your water doesn't even take dirt away from you. Or maybe some dirt, but that's about it. No sin. If you're not born again, you, you can't get the baptism. You must be born again. Then you have water witness of baptism as a public confession what's happening in your heart. And then you can ask for the filling of the Spirit. Now, it is possible for a person to be born again watching a baptism and repent right there, be water baptized, and be baptized with the Holy Spirit all at the same time. But the key is you must be born again. And so the house of Cornelius was baptized with the Holy Spirit. First, uh, Peter was preaching, and then he baptized them with water in uh, Acts chapter 10, 44 through 48. You have a different order there. The Ephesians in Acts 19, 1 through 6, were born again under John's ministry. And they were asked, to what baptism were you baptized? Unto John's. So then Paul baptized them. They rebaptized them in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. That was, and they were baptized in the Spirit. By the way, that was 24 years after Pentecost. Still going on. So much for the deceased. Peter said the baptism is for all who repent. Even to those who are far off in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 38 through 39. What must we do to be saved? Repent. Simple. Jesus said, all we have to do is ask in faith. As I said earlier, um, believers sometimes lay hands on people. There's no power in the hands. Just like sometimes you guys are sick, I anoint you with oil. No power in the, in the oil. Um, it's, it, it's an act of faith. We see it in scripture, so we do it. It's God who is sovereign, who does that work. Very, very important. And so, look at 19. The believer is wise then to walk joyful. The filling of the Spirit benefits the life of the believer, speaking to one another. The word speaking is a participle present that we are told, active and emphatic in the Greek. The tense indicates continuously resulting from obedience to the imperative command to be filled with the Spirit, of verse 18. The same holds true for of the other three participles that follow, singing, giving thanks, and submitting, four participles. The word speaking, laleo, is the unique attribute given to man by God to communicate and articulate with this little beast behind the ivory cage that we can articulate, make sounds, and understand each other. Many languages in the world. No other creature can do that. Oh, you can teach a parrot to mimic in that, but they, they don't have a vocabulary. 
only man does. Look at the phrase, one another. Often it is interpreted in the wrong way, says the Greek scholar Lenski. Listen carefully. The phrase, one another, is interpreted by many to mean each other in a reciprocal manner, one person to another, to benefit others. The phrase, one another, really means the person speaking to himself for their own good benefit, for your own sakes to benefit self. This is the first direct benefit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I first experience this, then I can be a benefit to others, speaking the word of God. But he says, it's to self here. The first, the, the, the Christian, the, the scriptures tell us that the farmer must first be partakers of his fruits. You can't give what you don't have. You find that in 2 Timothy 2, 6. And so this is, um, this is important here. Uh, singing, singing and making melody to ourselves in the Lord. Driving down the street, worshiping God. Filled with the Spirit of God. At home as you're vacuuming, whatever. Cooking. That's the indication here. The first effect is you first, then others. Very, very important. And so the manner and quality of their speech is one of spiritual worship in its threefold. Notice this description here in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. First, the believer speaks to himself in psalms. It means the, um, the striking of chords in a musical instrument, referring to the Old Testament psalms. Many of them were written to be accompanied with musical instruments. Um, Paul told the Corinthians, every one of you has a psalm in 1 Corinthians 14.26. Second, the believer is to speak also to himself in hymns. It means a song in praise, a sacred song. The word refers to the New Testament compositions of praise to God and Jesus Christ by those born of the Spirit and the Word of God. Some believe we have many recorded in the New Testament, and they put them out um, little thing, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Colossians 1, 12 through 18, and others. Now notice the third is a believer also is to speak to himself in spiritual songs. Uh, note it is accompanied by the adjective spiritual. The word spiritual, pneumaticos, identifies the nature of the kind. Anytime a Greek word ends in an ikos, it means it is controlled by whatever precedes. Pneumaticos is spiritual. You're controlled by the spirit. You're filled by the spirit. Okay? But he doesn't force us. It's our submission to him. Very, very important. And so the word song is a more informal and contemporary song, but distinct from the secular one. It indicates a spontaneous time of praise and lyrics sourced and manifested being filled with the spirit of God of verse 18. This does not mean that the psalms and hymns are not spiritual. It's just making a distinction between these different kinds. Now, notice the source and origin of this worship is the heart and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The word making melody is the derivative of the word psalms and can mean playing with a string instrument literally to pluck. 
But the context reveals this is not what Paul means here. The articulation and sound is not audible, but silent within the believer. That's what's indicated here. Some interpret this passage to be corporate worship in church, ignoring the context of inward private worship. The word heart is used in two different ways. It can be used for literal physical heart that pumps the blood through our bodies, carry the oxygen and nutrients. Um, the word heart cardian can be also used metaphorically for the character of a person, who they really are, good or evil, spiritual or natural. We make these songs and lyrics in our heart. It's inward worship, silent worship. It could be carried out to audible, but it's in the heart. It's what is moving us, what's influencing us. The context here denotes the center and seat of spiritual life of believers. The expression of a person's intellect, emotion, and will are filled and ruled by the Holy Spirit of God. To the Lord notice, the master, Kurios, the owner of the believer. This is not for the eyes and ears of any person to be impressed or to be convinced that the one worshiping is spiritual, but simply personal expression of their love for God as the Holy Spirit fills them, gushing in their heart. Is that clear? The context is very important. So we use scripture out of context very flippant as Christians in the church many, many times. Context is important. Uh, Acts 16.25, it says, But in the midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They're, they're being influenced by the Spirit, and they brought it forth audibly. But it was in their hearts for God, and many came to the Lord. And so the spiritual worship and praise is to the Lord, very important. Curio, the title, Master and Owner, Christos, meaning the anointed of God, the Messiah, the Lord and Christ. Um, was Jesus, meaning Yahweh is salvation, that's his name, the Greek name of the translation of the Hebrew name, Joshua. The Holy Spirit came to glorify and speak um, regarding Jesus, not himself, we are told by Jesus in, Acts 4, in John 14, 15, and 16. He never speaks of himself, he speaks of Jesus. Uh, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So Colossians, you know, is a sister epistle, the accompanying epistle. And there's much likeness in it, but the focus is different. Okay? He wrote them at the same time. Uh, one of the significant manifestations um, in the great revivals of history is the abundance of new songs and lyrics that come forth being filled with the Spirit of God. In the days of Moody and Wesley, many spiritual songs. And by the way, they took bar tunes and put Christian words to them. Those are the hymns that we sing. Well, we don't sing hymns, but churches sing. And they say, oh, no, you can't sing that. They would come out of bars. And they put Christian words to it. Revival, by God. Amazing. There's also a pop Christian music that is similar to worldly music. Big business. It brings a little praise to God. Some of it does, but a lot of it's entertainment today. Don't, don't confuse pop Christian music with worship. The worship's talking, bringing glory to God. 
to him alone. It causes you to focus on him, to meditate upon him. Psalm 118, 14 says, The Lord Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So these spiritual songs and lyrics keep our minds and hearts centered on the Lord and his word and uh, uplifting uh, in, uh, in every situation. Uh, not just the positive ones, but the negative ones. Reminding us that the grace and goodness of God is faithfulness. This is wisdom, the result of being filled with the Spirit of God. James 5.13 says, uh, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Personal devotion to God. Look at 20. The believer is wise. Next, to walk thankful. The Spirit here... A uh, filled person is one who is expressing his gratitude, giving thanks always for all things. The phrase giving thanks is a participle, present, active tense, as the previous one indicating continuous again. This again results when one is being obedient and imperative command to being filled with the Spirit of God. When the believer is not being yielded and empowered by the Spirit of God, uh, he's not very thankful. And if he is, it's only sporadic. Okay? Because we walk in the flesh. The giving of thanks here just means to be grateful, expressing one's appreciation uh, of another and to another. A new divine nature, being one with, um, um, with the Lord, enabling us to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, being conscious of all that God does, all that he directs and guides as we read the word, as we walk from day to day. Very important as we wait upon him. Um, Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says, I say, then walk in the spirit, you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So we have two natures, the divine nature, the old sin nature. And there's warfare, their intention. And I have to reckon the old man dead and put on the new man by my own obedience to God, trusting and depending on him. The measure of thanks, notice, is... To, in two ways. The believer is to be thankful through the process of time on earth by the word always. It means at all times. The context is for all that God has done for them, being very aware and conscious of it, knowing that God would be faithful throughout their lives always, regardless of what happens or what he allows to happen. They're looking to him. And then secondly, notice the believer is to be thankful for all things being the measure of always at all times what uh, ever confronts us in view of the faithfulness of God. Uh, he will be faithful. We have the record of that through scriptures, uh, uh, Daniel, Joseph, and many, many, many others. And so the things that bless, tempt, things allowed by God, regardless of not being able to see the purpose or reason or the benefit, the believer trusts, depends on the Lord, gives thanks. This is only possible as we are filled with the Spirit of God, to be thankful. Now, the believer doesn't give thanks for bad things. We, we're not sadists, masochists. We don't give thanks because someone gets run over. Well, you know, we, we praise God through that, praying for that individual. And not knowing how God's in this and that he would intervene. There's a big difference. Now the thanks should be directed to the first person of the Trinity. This is the order that's of the chain of command of the Trinity in view of salvation. 
to God the Father. Don't miss that. Beginning of verse 20. The Father is God, the source and origin of all things. The article is used to indicate one person identifying by two terms here. The Son is God, the channel. The Holy Spirit is the agent. Three persons, yet one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one Savior, he tells us in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 4 through 6. Yet the Father and Son are co-equal by the title God and Lord. Can't get away from it, okay? Now the Father stands in the place of priority by the fact that he's always mentioned first, then Jesus, when they're mentioned together in Scripture. Some people don't realize this. Uh, let me just give you a few of them. Uh, Ephesians 1.17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The Father's mentioned first. Whenever they're mentioned together, the Father's always first. Chain of command. The baptismal formula, Matthew 28.19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Jesus told the disciples they were to ask the Father in his name, all things, or he was the mediator, John 16, 23 through 24, 26 through 28, 1 Timothy 2, 5, over and over again. And so the approachability and access to the Father in view of salvation is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase in the name refers to the function of the second person of the Trinity and sphere by which God the Father has designated as a proper access to be thanked. He's the mediator. He is the, 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 the road. Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father by me. One name under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. One mediator, the mediator Christ Jesus between God and man. It's very, very clear. It's only through Jesus. And so the Father seated Jesus at the right hand of heaven for all ages. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, about principalities and powers, angelic beings. Therefore God also highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and heaven and earth. Philippians 2, 9 through 10. No one else. Colossians 3, 17 says the same thing. The person is the Son of God who became man. Our Lord, Kurios, there it is again, the title, describing that we are his possession. He owns us. He redeemed us out of the slave market. It's found 28 times in the letter. Kurios. Jesus means Yahweh's salvation, identifying as humanity. Through the incarnation, a real man, born of a virgin, through the conception of the Holy Spirit of God, yet without sin. Jesus is found 21 times in the letter. Christ, Christos, another title, expressing his deity, the anointed Messiah, find 46 times in the letter. Jesus, Christ, Lord. One name, two titles. Now, the unbeliever is characterized by unthankfulness, as you know. Paul says that men knew God, but they didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful, Romans 1.21. In the last day, men will be known for their love for self, money, pride, disobedience to parents, unthankful, 2 Timothy 3, 2. A carnal Christian is not being filled or controlled by the Spirit, but his flesh. 
He feels he always has not given his due at times, like the non-believer, his recognition, or whatever it may be, because he's focused on himself. He feels he deserves more. Somehow God has ripped him off. If God gave you what you deserve, or me, we wouldn't like it. Guaranteed. And so the spirit-filled believer walks in wisdom being thankful. He doesn't strive with God, but rather seeks God to confirm his will in order to depend on him. Uh, Psalm 69.30 says, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Knowing that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28 tells us. He realizes that giving thanks for everything is God's will in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. God's will is the best for us. We may not understand it. We may not like it at first, but God's will is always the best. It's protection. Listen to Hebrews 13.15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. No matter what the believer receives, be it little or much, he is to be thankful. Be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God, Philippians 4, 6. I know how to be abased, Paul says. I know how to abound, Philippians 4, 12. Contentment, knowing that God's will is best. Look at 21. The believer now is wise by to walk humble. The Apostle Paul reveals he was still speaking to the individual in the church body, walking in wisdom, resulting again in being filled with the Spirit of God, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Um, there are commentaries that believe this verse begins a new section and begins this section on the family. So they take it from chapter 5, verse 21 to chapter 6, verse 9. But by doing this, they are interrupting the last of the seven marks of walking in wisdom that really go from 15 to 21. Walking circumspectly, redeeming the time, understanding the will of the Lord, and so on and so forth, all the way to here, verse 21. There's seven. And so they also are interrupting the natural flow of the four participles speaking to ourselves, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. They're ignoring the clear distinction of the submission by the context. Verse 21 is reciprocal submission of one Christian to another. Verse 22 is mutual submission of wives and husbands. Big difference. We might call verse 21 transitional, going from submission to each other, to wives and husbands, to the entire household that goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. Being able to see clearly the use of the key words repeated, the process, the exhortation of this section, such as darkness and light, walk, wise, and now submit. And this goes from verse 7 to 21. So you have to follow the train of thought. This style is called a parenthesis here, pronounced um, the um, book of James is, is the best example. As you look to that chapter 1, verse 2 through 6, 1, 12 through 15, and 3, 2 through 8. 
And so the Greek scholar Lenski explains it is in this way regarding those who interpret verse 21 as a new section. Listen carefully. Quote, those who think that the contrary, um, that the contrary is the case labor um, to construe or interpret the participle. To call it a nominative absolute is to state that it cannot be construed or interpreted. To let it mean while subjecting yourselves to each other, the wives to their own husband is unwarranted because the wives are to subject themselves to their husbands mutual and not as we are to subject ourselves to the rest of us, reciprocal. It's a different submission. And you have to follow that. So there's that distinction between verse 21 and verse 22. And then he says, if he had Paul, if, if Paul had intended to make a break at verse 21, it would have been the simplest thing in the world to write an imperative. And so these are all Greek grammar rules that, I mean, did you like English in school? I didn't like English in school, okay? But, but it, is, it is important when you know grammar. It makes a big difference. And so the spirit-filled person is able to submit to others. The word submitting is hupotasso again. It's um, under and to line up under. It's a military word. You line up with someone who is in more authority than you. It's a military term. Um, the two words joined together simply mean that. But it never implies inferiority, as we said this morning. Very important. This is not a natural ability of a man uh, due to his pride or sin nature, but a supernatural enablement of the believer to be filled by the Spirit of God that comes about. And so the word is the fourth participle in the present tense here, but in the middle voice, uh, like the preceding three principles or participles, uh, present continuous, that is durative. So in other words, the person has to do it themselves. The middle voice is always the person does it. No one can do it for you. This commands for you individually as well as myself. And so the submission is to be to one another. The word is different from the one another in verse 19, as we pointed out. It is indicating to yourselves um, the person. Uh, verse 21, the Greek word is different. It means another person, not ourselves. And you must make that distinction. So the submission to, the un, to uh, be ongoing is to those comprising the entire church body that is made up of many members, just as in our physical body, that's illustrated in Romans 12. Each is to walk according to their calling, as he said in chapter 4, verse 1. Each is to walk in humility and love in chapter 4, verse 2. Each is to walk doing all they can to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and not disrupt it, chapter 4, verse 3. Each is given the grace according to the measure of Christ's gift to serve the body in chapter 4, verse 7. And each is to be joined and knit together to supply the effective working of every part to bring about the growth and edification of the body in love, 4, 16. The Holy Spirit does all this. We as the instruments and we yield to him, but he's the one that does it. So the spirit-filled believer submits in the fear of God. Don't miss this. It's the fear of God. The word fear forward, the context means reverence, respect, um, God's wisdom and purpose for efficiency, 
Uh, the word can be also mean literally um, fear in, in a different context. Um, and so the submission is uh, in respect, an awe towards God, if you will, knowing one's accountability to the measure of light that we have received, that we will be judged one day for why we did and how we did it, um, for rewarded to be in the seat of Christ. And so the submission is never beyond or um, in addition to Scripture. So any submission that you would give to a pastor or an elder is limited by Scripture. That authority has no, nothing beyond the Scriptures. Everybody's limited by the Scriptures. We're all on equal level, very important. So the believer's reverence, respect, and adoration of the Lord Jesus is um, evident by walking in, in wisdom, as Ephesians says, from 15 to 21. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding, Proverbs 9.10 tells us. Um, this refers to the first step and the foundational step. So the foundation is in Proverbs 1.7, and the first step is Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord. When people don't fear God or they lose the fear of God, then they start doing whatever they want. They don't feel accountable to God anymore. They're their own authority. Very, very, very dangerous. And so the primary submission of the believer is to obey God, not Satan. And that happens when we disobey God. We're paying heed to Satan. And so we're to study the word, obey it. We're to pray, to seek his will. We're to serve in the church, trusting him, obeying him. James 4, 7 says, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So you got to do both. you got to draw an eye to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You can't just draw an eye to God. You can't just resist. you got to do both. Very, very important. And so the believers to submit to the, um, to the rulers of the world. God gives that in Romans 13, 1 through 7. But their responsibility is to punish the evil and care for the good. And God gives that responsibility to the non-believers who govern, the mayors, the governors, the presidents, the senators, whoever it may be. Because they're creating the image of God, they have the potential knowing to distinguish good and evil. And God holds them responsible. When they cease to protect the good and they reward the evil, then they have no authority over me. Now, I'll stop at a red line. I'll pay my taxes. But I, I don't... I don't believe they have authority over me when they're doing evil. The problem today is that the, the lawmakers are the lawbreakers. That's a big problem. And so my submission is to God. Very, very important. Um, as submission to the Lord, he says, uh, therefore submit yourselves uh, to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to king or supreme, 1 Peter 2.13. But the same principle lies there. Many people have charged me and been very mad with me through this COVID thing because we never went out. We, we came back in the, in the building and, and they say, well, I don't, you don't care, this and that. Listen to me. Come to the conference, okay? It's a big lie, all that's going on. I'm not saying that people can't get sick through COVID. I'm not saying that some people even died of COVID. I'm saying it's not what they're saying. The numbers are exaggerated. The infectious contamination is a lie. If you would have taken hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, you would be healed in two or three days. That's why they demonized the medicine. Cost you pennies compared to the thousands of dollars 
of the other things that do not make you well, but in fact allow you to die. All right? And so um, we want to do due diligence and make sure that we are trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord and that we're honoring the Lord. And we do pray for the, those in rulership and, and authority, but that doesn't mean we don't point out their evil. Absolutely not. We will point out the evil and we'll let the chips fall where they may. That's up to God. And so um, a believer is to submit to the leaders of the church, but again, their authority is limited by Scripture. Let me give you two verses and we'll close. 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Pastors, elders, stuff like that. For they watch for, out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Just like a father and son relationship. If it's only contagious, then nothing goes on. If there's just contentions all the time. Now, once again, the authority of any pastor is limited by Scripture. I have no power or control over your life. I teach you the Word of God. I, we pray for you, and we show up, and we try to serve you. But you're the only one that can obey God's Word. You're the one that decides whether you come or you don't. We don't have authority over your lives. We don't want that authority. But we do understand the accountability we have for teaching God's word, exhorting you, even rebuking you and confronting you when we see and know something's wrong. Just as I would want you to confront me if there was something wrong. It's a measure of love. If you hang out with people that tell you what a great person you are, go get some real friends, as I've told you often. Uh, it's important that uh, you be confronted and that God be the one who's running your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Thank you for your word, Lord, that we uh, can be built up and encouraged. Our hope is in you and no one else. And we pray for everybody here, Lord, that you would deal with our hearts and allow us to continue to grow as we look to you. Father, for those that don't know you here or over the Internet, that you would speak to their hearts, that they would call on your name to be saved, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the internet. The Bible says if you believe Jesus died and rose from the dead, you can call upon him. If you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. If you see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation and forgiveness, that Jesus is God who died for you, then you can call upon his name right now. Simple prayer, repentance, is what Jesus always required. This is a very simple prayer. Your prayer to him, not to us. And if you mean it, he'll save you right now. He'll forgive you right now and make you a child of God. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.